G'day guys, Kerry here from the Trigonometry Show uh, in Precision Shooter. It's been ages since I've done one of these, so I thought it was time, one, to get another show out, and two, to catch up with Robin from Reading. How are you, Robin? Very good, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I, I, I had a look. It's been uh, over a year, which is uh, far too long, really. So, um, like I said, I think we'll, we'll try and get this going a little bit more regularly and uh, maybe turn them into slightly shorter shows, although I think we may end up finding plenty to talk about but sort of just focus on a question um each time or something that relates um to um reloading so um i i hit you up recently uh again and i mean as a lot of this is i mean this is actually often quite um you know selfish is that i have a problem and then i go well who could i ask about this and then i'm like oh why not just go to the source so um as you're probably aware, I, I'm focusing mainly on the long range side of things these days. So that's probably where most of what we're, we're talking about will focus on. And um, my, I, I, I suppose there's two things. My little uh, bugbear, which we'll talk about soon, has been concentricity. Um, right. But I also wonder if um, I may actually just be causing myself issues by... Um, uh, getting a gauge and um, getting overly critical, but so you can probably give me some guidelines on that. Um, in the context of um, the long range shooting, where I guess our our big thing is often once we've got our fundamentals and our our rifle setup and everything on the reloading side of things, I think what drives a lot of us is the uh, ES and SD trying to reduce that um, because that re uh, results in our Velocity spread, which then results over distance as uh, vertical vertical stringing. So, um, we're not so much talking right down to bench rest uh, territory, where we're trying to go for the tiniest tiniest groups whatsoever. But we're looking at stuff that's going to make a distant uh, difference as we get out to distance. So, if we just give it a context, because I know like so many things in shooting, if you don't kind of frame it, someone then turns around and goes, "Oh, how about this?" And it's like, "Well, yeah, relevant for this discipline, maybe not for what we're doing." Well, it's interesting because what we're looking at today with uh, PRS type shooting, um, long range, um, really it's, it's bench rest 20 years ago. And it's simply as bench rest continues to evolve, the long range shooting disciplines from PRS, uh, sniper type competitions, and even here in the States, especially, uh, the hardcore long range varmint hunter are using so many of the techniques and so many of the technologies that really either were born out of bench rest shooting or evolved through bench rest shooting over the years. And it's kind of a, a fundamental trickle down of things that happen. There's a, there are a lot of great, easy things, particularly to deal with your extreme spreads, your standard deviations, that they came from bench rest, but they're not, I don't want to offend anyone, but they're not the crazy edge of bench rest of today. Although in, in 20 years, that crazy edge of bench rest may be what the average shooter's doing. Yeah, I, I think it's a thing. Um, I always balance it off. If I think most of us, uh, what we all really need is more practice shooting. So there's there's a balance between um, spending five hours in the reloading room, getting that nth degree, and spending one or two, and then the other three hours practicing your trigger control. For for me, certainly, I can't speak for everyone. For me, certainly, I know that's where the balance is. That I just I don't do enough trigger time, um, but it can sometimes be easier and maybe more quantifiable to do all the stuff in the reloading room. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> well, we get back to you and I have talked about what I call my three magic words of reloading for so many years, identify, quantify, you just use quantify and mitigate. So what what where are the variables that we can readily identify that we can find tools or make tools or make te techniques to quantify them? And once quantified, we can move into the mitigation strategies for them. So every one of those that we take down, every time we can minimize variabilities or 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 well, variabilities, whether they be internal, external, et cetera, whenever we can deal with that, we, it makes up for the little bit less trigger time. It makes up for the not shooting every day or not shooting every week. And <clears throat> honestly, there are a lot of techniques that are very simple um, that folks can use. I mean, obviously, we all, we're all very careful about weighing our powder charges. You know, we all try to, get, you know, we're trickling that last little bit in. Um, but it's funny here, even here in the States where we have access and I don't 
don't mean to mean to say bad things about any other country, but here in the U.S., we tend to have access to so much more stuff. I mean, I talked to friends of mine in South Africa that only have like three different powders. And here in the U.S., we've got dozens, if not hundreds. So things that come into play that are beneficial to us are just like, obviously, bullet jump into the lands is always a benefit because we talked about that. That's, a, um, you know, whenever we can better control that first pressure curve before we hit the lands and the big pressure curve starts, we, we reduce vertical stringing. But the simplest ones that people don't think about sometimes is primer pocket uniforming and flash hole uniforming. And Redding makes a couple of nice tools for that. You know, we make a five-fluted carbide cutter for uniforming. Wi-Fi flutes because odd numbers don't chatter. So we set up a very smooth, very flat. And what that does, of course, is it gives us a more uniform strike on the primer, uh, a primer that's more, let's say, in balance with the cartridge case. Um, we're not hitting it harder or lighter based on a depth variation in the, in the particular cartridge case head. So brissants. I love that word, even though it's French. So brissants remains more consistent, which means powder ignition remains more consistent. Um, another one that's very important, obviously, is flash hole uniforming, because other than Lapua, everybody still punches those flash holes. So that means there's some spurious material that's been thrown off that may be blocking part of that flash hole in the inside or may be diverting the brissants as it comes from the primer and attempts to get in. We make Redding makes a tool for that, which uniquely um, uniforms the flash hole, not from the primer pocket side, but from the neck end. And the reason for that is by using that piloted longer shape, we wind up with a much straighter, truer hole, flash hole. But also, if we look very carefully, we'll see above that sort of center drill that actually uniforms the flash hole, we have a small um, – Basically, it's it, it's uh, a small angular cut that occurs that actually cleans up any of that extra debris that may have been pushed inside, but also puts a small chamfer on the inside of the flash hole, allowing that flash, brissants, to actually um, – You're just going to try and see how many times you can say brissants in this conversation. I know, I know. <laughs> but anyway, to allow it to be a more uniform or, if you will, it, to allow it to spread – yeah. And ignite the powder again more uniformly. Yeah. Well, um, it was it was something we talked about last time because I had the, for the 308, I had the Lupua Brass, but we sort of talked about, well, doing that that um, uniforming anyway, just because then it's done. But what I've had recently is I've switched over. I've been shooting, like many people, shooting 6.5 Creedmoor, and I've just been shooting factory because time um, has just meant that, and because I've been able to get um, Hornaday match down here, it just shoots, it shoots well enough for what I've been doing now. Now I'm kind of like, all right, it's I've got this, I've got hundreds of pieces of Hornaday brass, and I should do something with them. So I've started, and I've started by uniforming the inside of that flash. And I was interested that there was a lot more material, obviously, because it's punched coming out of that than there ever was the Lapua. Um, so I mean, this was my you're tying into what was one of the other questions, which was for the guys. Uh, see, I. I and this also ties in what you're saying with you, uh, America having access to a lot more um, items of variation. A good example also of that is is the brass. So especially now through the PRS, you're seeing all these other boutique brands of brass manufacturers and ammo for that for that extent, which leads Correct. into the brass. Yep. You know, you're thinking of the Alphas for the brass. I'm thinking, uh, think Peterson. Yep, out of Pennsylvania. Um, and, yeah, and then and then ammo side, you've got guys like Prime and all the smaller boutique things. Whereas uh, we have down here, you've got unless you're bringing them in specifically, you've got Lapua is going to be your pinnacle, and then you've got all the the other factory stuff, which is often factory loads, and you save the brass. So my question was, is yeah, with when we've got those cheaper brass options, not saying that some of these are actually that cheap once they get down here, but yeah, what are the stages to go and get them? most out of it the obviously um doing the primer pocket like you said doing the inside of the primer pocket as well um yeah what what else because i do this is back to my concentricity question which is this whole going around in circles of sure. things is i've noticed that the concentricity on it on the the hornaday brass which is what i'm using which is is fine um is more than what my lapua brass was right and one of the things that we're going to run into is case neck wall thickness variation. It happens. It occurs. Um, 
and when we get into a wall thickness variation, we can't build a concentric round out of it for two reasons. One, one side is thicker than the other, and everybody can figure that part out. But then we go back to that wonderful path of least resistance that we learned as kids. So when we see the bullet, if one case wall is thicker than the other side of the case wall, the, the thin side breaks down causing the expansion to not be uniform as the bullet seats, pushing that bullet over to the weak side. So we may find a case that has, oh, let's say a, a, a one and a half or two thousandths neck wall thickness variation using something like, you know, we make that case neck gauge tool, which is actually very easy to use. I mean, you can do it with a ball mic or a tube mic, but honestly, the case neck gauge makes it so nice because you don't need to be a machinist and have all of that hand, you know, all the hand capability. But we'll see a two thousands neck wall thickness that way manifest itself into a three and a half thousands concentricity variation. And that's because we're giving way on that weak side of the neck and the bullet pushes the, the actually at that point, the bullet is not pushing the bullets actually being positioned by the thicker case wall. And this was something I remember talking about with the last one, because I had the question of neck turning. So yep. this is something, as you explained, neck turning is not something that can correct that issue as such because that thickness issue could be all the way down the case anyway you know, and you're really just removing material on one section of it not the whole thing correct the only way that sidewall the neck gets thick is that the the um the cup when it was first dropped into the draw die wasn't quite on center or the tooling itself has been worn to such a point that when the when the um basically when we first hammer, because, you know, we do obviously brass through a method where there's a cup in the bottom, a, a, a ram comes down into an enclosed space, smashes that cup, and then it squeezes itself up the sides. That's, you know, the, the drawing process. So if that cup's not perfectly centered, or if for some reason the ram that comes down and hits in the middle is off, or the tooling is slightly worn, we're going to wind up with a thick side and a thin yeah. side. So... That being the case, then it's just a case of going through really uh, batching or um, yeah, culling off the the extremes. Correct, and yeah. that's that's really what we want to look towards. Is we want to see something. If we've got a three and a half thousandths neck wall thickness variation, it's it's a fowler. That's all you're yeah. going to ever use it for because yeah. it's not going to produce a good load for you. The other thing that's a very easy thing to do, and that is to weigh our cases. You know, sure. I mean, we don't want to get into water weight weighing and all the volumetrics, but in a basic weighing situation, we can determine. I, and I, I'll give you an interesting example. I was just I had a, a brass company that's friendly to me that requests every once in a while, you know, gee, you have this rifle, you have this capability. We're going to come out with brass for a different cartridge that we've ever made before. Would you mind, you know, taking 100? loading them up, seeing what you think of them. And it was kind of interesting in this case because with the particular cartridge, the data manuals all said that a, a given load would be at a certain point becomes a compressed load. Sure. Well, I was finding, I was compressing the load almost, well, almost a grain and a half lighter than where I should have been running into a compressed load, even dropping it through a drop tube, you know, an extended yep. drop tube. Yep. Well, when I weighed those cases, those cases were a little bit heavier. Gotcha. So that tells me the walls were thicker, the web was thicker, we had a smaller internal volume. And we'll go back to what you were talking about, that vertical stringing through variation. If we have the same amount of powder in a smaller space, we generate a higher pressure. Therefore, yeah. we're going to hit a little bit higher down, particularly as the range extends. Yeah. So, okay, so you've got the uh, culling out the, the extremities just to, um, or yeah, separating them off, so you're using them for fowlers or ciders, something like that. Doing your primers, both in the, um, we'll say inside and outside. Um, right. And then obviously there's trimming and uh, chamfering and beveling the top side of it as well. I mean, for, I suppose I compare to people, or I say to people sometimes, you just have to weigh up the amount of extra labor you do versus maybe the cost of that bit of brass where someone's pretty much done that for you at the factory. Would that be a fair comment? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And we, we have the opportunity 
because I'm, we all have our off seasons. Yeah. I've, I've got a foot of snow outside right now. So <laughs> going to the range is not, you know, this, even though I'm off this week for our Thanksgiving holiday, sure. I'm not going to get out and play very much because it snowed three inches again yesterday. And uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not um, really bike riding weather, is it? Is it? it is not <laughs> bike riding weather at all because, this, because I will, I can date it down to a week ago, Friday, the first salt hit the road. And once the salt hits the road here, yeah. we never take the bikes out no. until spring after some good hard rains to wash it away. Um, so it gives us that opportunity to really remain engaged with the sport mm-hmm. in the time when it's difficult to get out to the range. And yep. it's worth at that point, we've got the extra time to do it. We can prep those cases. Um, even if we're not going to load them right away, we, we know we've got those cases ready for spring or for better weather when the time comes. And and we're we're again, we're back to mitigating. We're going to we're going to take away those variables wherever we can. That allows us as individuals to be slightly more variable, but still wind up with what we want at the end. Mm-hmm. So, uh, brass pit being a key, uh, we know that measuring your powder, the more accurate you can get that, the more consistent you can get that, obviously. Ties into that if you want to go to that extent as well as me- or measuring everything, quantifying everything, projectile weights, the, the whole lot. And it's just a case, especially if you've got downtime, um, sure. you can be doing something else watching tv or measuring projectile weights if you want it's one of those things that you probably can get away you know doing something else at the same time i wouldn't suggest charging cases while watching tv but you know other auxiliary things um well, you know, there's another piece if you look at our instant indicator tool that we make yes you know one of the things that instant indicator does also is that the the brass setup gauge included with it which we normally use for our datum line headspace dimension yep. to to set up our comparator situation the the hole in that is actually um land diameter for the cartridge so putting the blank contactor in we now have the ability to drop projectiles into that and measure cartridge measure base to land bearing point so we can now segregate bullets out into it so we can uniform them for weight but now we can also uniform them for base the measurement of base to land bearing point so that we can uh Again, Bruce Merker, who was uh, who was the national sales manager of writing for over 30 years, passed away this year. Wonderful gentleman. He'd been ill for a while, but he did it. He, you know, this was his use for egg cartons. And so he'd sit there and met. Right. So you've because you've got 12 (laughs) and, you know, he'd find his middle. And then the ones that weighed a little bit more, a little bit more, either went up or down in the egg carton so that he wound up with taking those hundred those hundred projectiles and he may wind up with. I don't know, eight or 10 different subcategories. But by doing that, that group, if he built, if he loaded a group of five or a group of 10 or whatever he had available, they become more uniform when you're shooting for record. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess that's the thing. It, quantifiably for guys who are shooting long ranger, is there any way to quantify how much of a difference it's going to make for guys when we're shooting out to distance? I know that's a, yes. There it is. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. And it's expensive. It's yeah. Okay. Called, all, right, all right. It's called an Ailer Ballistic Explorer, yeah. which <laughs> which strain gauges on your barrel and actually can because we have personal computing power so good today yeah. that using the Ailer Ballistic Computer, we can actually put strain gauges on the barrel and we can witness graphically right. the entire pressure curve. Yeah. So we see how much pressure it takes for the bullet to pull. So we see that first peak, which is start pressure. The bullet pulls, then we see that start to drop down. And then until the bullet hits the lands, when it goes up yet again, and we have the big area under the curve. So that's where so many things come into play, like um, um, basically if we have running crimp, running no crimp, how uniform are we with our neck tension? What's our bullet pull going to be required to do? Um, the second piece is that's where we get into things like that. Where's the land bearing point on the bullet? Because how long is that jump? Because if it jumps six thousandths or eight thousandths, we're going to have a difference because our pressure is going to have dropped so much more before we engage the rifling. Yes. That we'll never get the we'll never get the area under the curve under the set under the big second curve. Yeah. Because if we start cool, remember. Smokeless powder generates heat and pressure 
based on the heat and pressure that it starts with. That's why loads go faster on hot days, you know, yeah. all of that. So if we're at a with a with the Ehler Ballistic Explorer and seeing that actual seeing that actual function. And if we see the curve, the first curve, you know, which is start to bullet pull drop. Now, how long does it take for it between bullet pull and engaging the rifling? <clears throat> if there's a variability there and that drops deeper, if the pressure is lower before we hit the lands, we'll never generate the same amount of pressure as if it were higher when we hit sure. the lands. Sure. Okay. Yep. So it's not really a function of how much powder is left. It's a function of that whole burn rate process. Yeah, which is often for uh, for us, we're doing a field shoot where we really are loading from magazines because if we're, we're doing a string of fire on a particular stage, which is t 10 rounds, for example, um, single feeding becomes a little bit of a trick. So for a lot of us, factory, semi-fact, not quite custom builds where we're limited by magazine length, we're always True. going to be kind of limited by um, having to have to have a jump. Whereas the guys doing, I suppose, the, the ELR, the F-class or stuff where they really, the, this, the rate of fire is reduced. Um, that's where they can really be pushing those, those projectiles out further. Correct. Correct. So, um, the, okay, so brass, brass prep, reducing, seeing what we can do to reduce this ES and S, uh, SD. Um, as, as an aside, uh, do you have any thoughts, uh, they're both important, but do you generally or have a preference for chasing SD or ES, or is it like some guys will say SD is your first thing you chase and when you get that low enough, now you start chasing your ES? Exactly. Yeah. SD is going to be, SD is going to be, uh, that's going to give us the statistical value of how darn good this ammo is, how much alike it is yeah. um, within a predictable range. Yeah. And yes, if there is the occasional odd, if there's the occasional odd one that skews it slightly, okay. But still as a whole, if we can bring standard deviation down, we're going to wind up with more, more, I don't mean reliable in terms of function, but I mean reliable in terms of where that bullet hits on the target. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a measure of consistency, I suppose, or an Correct. average. Um, I'm just thinking for people who maybe haven't ventured in and the difference between SD and ES. So SD being, to simplify it, we'll call it the average and the ES right. being the, well, the extreme spread, obviously. That one's in right. the name. Right. Yep. Standard deviation is going to be our, within a given lot, it's going to be our anticipated measurement of variability. Yes. <clears throat> yep. And um, one of the funniest days I ever had, I taught a, um, I taught a, reloading course for a group of law enforcement snipers and of course in the u.s law enforcement would never use anything but factory ammo because was, of liability yes yeah the goal was a friend who was a law enforcement certified sniper instructor that ran a range here in new york state asked me to come in and show agencies how they could replicate their factory ammo and train so okay. they could cut their training costs very dramatically again like your idea more rounds more more time at the range more you know for the same dollars more rounds down range the better you get yeah. So we were using federal match with 168 grain bullets, et cetera. And we did a pretty good job of duplicating those. The funniest part of it was, is the difference in SD mm. between the hand loaded ammunition and the factory ammunition. Yeah. Um, extreme spread wasn't that much bit. wasn't, wasn't that different, but the standard deviation came way down. Okay. <clears throat> Most interesting in that is, as a culmination to prove to the agencies, I, we, I took five guys each from agencies. They each loaded one round, um, trickled the powder, you know, walked them through them by hand, and they shot the um, – they shot – we were just shooting chronograph at that point. We weren't worried about you – know, we were documenting the fact we could produce ammunition that was equal to or better than what, was, what they were buying from the factories. Yeah. And the craziest part of it is five different people who had never loaded before in their life loaded one round each. We shot them over the chronograph, and we wound up with a standard deviation of eight feet per second, <laughs> which bench rest guys would kill each other to have. Yeah. And it just worked out that way. Yeah. Well, it's the one thing I've noticed, you know, um, using, we've been generally just using Hornaday Match, which has been uh, good. And at, a, at 100, when we're zeroing, when we're doing, you know, quick groups and stuff, we're, we're talking most rifles um, half half MOA, fairly easily, all day long. All, not a problem. And even going to reloads, we're not 
we will be getting smaller grouping size but not hugely but the real big difference yes we notice is that the sd on the the match the factory ammo can be 20 plus sometimes right. um right. whereas potentially an sd of the the hand loads we can be starting to get into those single digits which is is the goal and kind of expected so a lot of guys i think if they just shoot at 100 and compare the ammo without comparing say a, a chronograph or the ability to measure that could easily go well these seem to be very similar performance wise but you now take that out to a k or a mile and that sd right. and es is going to make a lot more difference and that'll be that one going above below um correct have, have just as a side note have you or do you know does es or es ever and i can't see how but you you may know there's something there can that ever cause horizontal stringing or is it purely vertical the only way it can create a difficulty is through going transonic sooner rather than later. Okay. So if we have so transonic on the downside can do all kinds of crazy things because yeah. having I've had a lot of experience obviously with the Doppler radars at both Yuma and at, uh, Yuma Proving Ground and at Aberdeen when I was involved with Shitech. So we got to see those and those traces actually show you what happens to a projectile when it goes transonic. Sure. And they fall apart, you know, they yeah. do every, you know, they, they, they wobble all over the place until they settle back down again. Yeah. So yes, at that point, because we're not at a given distance. Yes. If we happen to be going transonic 10 feet before target yeah. on some of them and 10 feet past the target on others, yeah. we're going to see a very, very difference. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. Um, I mean, it's a limited space, but it is certainly there. Oh, and, and I suppose uh, for a lot of our, field shoots we'll be keeping under that with a lot of the cartridges we're using but even down here like certainly in america and i'd say the world the elr side of things is becoming more and more um mm -hmm. popular uh elr or even long range meaning we're shooting them into the transonic or subsonic uh territories and and yes that's exactly where that will become more evident as well um so yeah so i mean what what is the holy grail of SD and ES? Is there something that you've seen or is it, is it, uh, and I guess how much work, you know, it's, it's all of the above. Yeah. You know, that's okay. the part it's that it's that minimizing or mitigating every variable. And each time we, it's intriguing because I talked about 20 years ago versus today and what people were doing. Yeah. Well, once we conquer, once we conquer some variables, now we look for new ones. Yeah. And the one variable out there right now, which hasn't, really been addressed as well as it could be and uh, it's a tech it's not really a technology issue right now it's a cost of technology issue sure. but we make a mistake by expressing neck tension as a diameter because when we do that we do nothing about metallurgy okay yes yep so if we had a reliable method of measuring the pressure necessary to seat the bullet. Mm -hmm. It gives us a correlation to the pressure necessary to pull the bullet. Yeah. Hence, if it's difficult to seat this one and it's easy to seat this one, we know we're going to have a different, we're going to have a different start pressure at bullet pull. Yes. And at long yep. range, that's going to affect us. Yeah. So there's a, you know, Redding has been looking at that. We've got a couple of, we've, we have a couple of products designed that unfortunately would be fabulous, except um, a little teeny piece of electronics to do what we need to do is rather expensive at this mm. point because it's sort of laboratory grade stuff yeah. um, that could actually measure within the shell holder the amount of force it takes to seat that bullet. Now, right. it's unfortunately, it's another one of those expensive things where our mitigation strategy becomes set them off to the side or throw them away. Yeah. But it also allows us to group. And yeah. if we can group things to say, okay, we know predictably this is going to be. And over time, if we can, because this in particular technology allows you to plug into a laptop and basically categorize everything. Yeah. Well, be very quick to say, okay, well, we know ones that take this much deceit run this much slower or this much faster. Yeah. So then very quickly, you could. it's another line to add to your dope sheet. You know, the stuff that we put the black magic marker on the heads of was yeah. harder to see. So it's going to come out of the higher pressure. So it's going to shoot higher. So we want to take a half minute off at a certain range. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah, it gets it's but it, that's an that's another area we've yet to really fully be able to um, 
to quantify. But but that's but I mean the technology and cost is like you say is a, is a is the is a true factor. But then again, ten years ago as well, probably even five years ago, you wouldn't necessarily consider a home induction and kneeling machine that's electronically controllable that can do testing and every, all that would be viable either. But like the guys from AMP, I've got to plug the local boys. Um, it, it, it just changes and then slowly it trickles down to the market. I'm not saying everyone's got home induction machines, but it's become a lot more common uh, for that sort of thing. So price point just comes down as, as technology improves. So yes, at some point it will be something that we're doing as well. Um, yep. But that's one of the that's that's sort of a next gen thing that we're looking at the idea yeah. of how can we how we how can we measure and the best the best corollary is seating pressure how much pressure does it take to seat that same case same bullet same everything but if it but if we have harder or softer brass and it takes a great deal more effort to seat it we know it's going to take more energy more powder burn more pressure to yeah. pull that bullet and yes. so we've got another variability that we can develop a strategy around. And that strategy may be calling them in, you know, red magic marker, green magic marker, blue magic marker. But now we know that if I'm shooting these, I can anticipate I need to be a, a half minute up or a half minute down based on something at a given distance. Well, uh, I look forward to you releasing a press with a USB port on the side of it. <laughs> uh, it would actually it would actually be a shell holder with a USB cable coming out of it. Gotcha. Yep. 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 Um, Cool. All right. So my other, uh, what really prompted me to get in contact with you has been, and I've, I've actually, funnily enough, went over and did some measuring again this morning on the um, concentricity, the, the comparator gauge I've got over here. And so concentricity, uh, my first question, having just measured a few and compared to factory, because that's always a good, I think this is the thing, it's always a good reality check to take some factory rounds, measure, quantify those and see how you compare to those because mm-hmm. I've become aware, and this I've got got the gauge over there. I've become aware that sometimes when you can quantify stuff, you can also trip yourself over a little bit uh, if you don't know what you should be measuring it against or what you should be aiming for. Especially as the measuring devices get more and more, um, what's the term? Uh, I suppose finer. It can look mm-hmm. like a big variation, but it's actually a very big, very very fine variation. So, um, in regards to concentricity. Again, is there a guideline that you would kind of suggest guys should be going for as a, a baseline to work with? I mean, I, I just measured some, um, for example, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I measured some factory rounds and they gave me a, um, this is a um, 21st century comparator, they gave me a 6.5 thou, um, what was it, we'll call it side to side. Um, right, yeah. Variation kind of variation, six yes. and a half thousandths off center. Yeah, yeah, off, yeah. Off, off ballistic center or bore axis. Yes. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. That's yeah. We I'd like a whole lot less than that. Yes. You know, I'd of like course. to be in that one and a half to two. Okay. All right. So now one and a half to two. Are we talking high end bench rest? I mean, is this is, is this no. this is what no. we should be aiming for? Is yep. I mean, yep. it's attainable with with good tools. Yes. Um, Obviously, I mean, you have, I, I can see your press in the background. You've got a great press. Yep. Um, you have, you know, the, the there are numerous indiv- independent individuals out there, machinists, et cetera, who have, have looked at this and have found that, for instance, the Reading, our competition seating die because of the sliding sleeve, all the things that we do different on that. Um, there are a couple of different guys out there using concentricity gauges that we don't get in the real world because they're only in labs and (laughs) we're literally able to to find that they wound up with more with a more concentric finish round than the components they started with yes yep um another real easy one is um for instance to add our free-floating carbide expander button yeah we're going to expand um, I have to tell you the dirtiest joke out there. You know that if you were to take an expander button out of a Reading full-length die, yeah, produce a case with perfect concentricity. Right. It's just when we pull the expander button back through. If we have a wall thickness variation that manifests itself, if we have, you know, if we have a, a bent decap rod, it drags us off a little bit. Things like that. But um, um, when you're when you're make as we do when you're making those full length sizing dies with a one piece reamer at the end, yeah, they have to be 
perfectly concentric. Yeah, and gotcha. they would produce a piece of brass that also is. Now, could there be tiny variations in spring back because of wall thickness? Absolutely. But in the big picture. So we look at something like the free flow carbide size button and we say, OK, so that centers itself. Yeah. Um, it has it, it's harder. So it puts less wear and tear on the, the physical material, but also because it's more of a ball shape rather than a longer piece, you know, yep. it's contacting less at one time. So it's less less likely to distort anything. Um, <clears throat> yes, we're famous for our bushing dies. Yes, lots of guys tout the fact that they can use a bushing die with no expander. Um, I look to the man, Richard Beebe, that owns Redding, that actually designed those dies, who uses an expander. Yep. And what his goal is to expand it about a half a thousandths. So we're, uh, our carbide button is about one and a half thousandths under bullet diameter. Yep. So if we can create two thousandths and then we come back at that half, that, take that half thousandths out, remember what we're doing. Because we're forced to take an OD to create our ID, mm -hmm. any anomalous material gets forced to the inside. Yes. Yep. So where's inside? Inside's next to our bullet, which is going to affect or potentially affect bullet pull. Yep. So if we have that half thousands run coming back with a free floating carbide expander, what we've done is we're basically we're ironing that out. We're burnishing the inside of that neck yep. so that the bolt has the cleanest possible release. So is that where then guys can, I suppose two follow-up questions. One is, um, is that where guys will then do something like that, then try and measure the concentricity of the outside of the neck now realize they have pushed a, um, a variation or something to the outside of a neck and then go, oh, well, obviously now I need to uh, turn on my necks to get rid of that. Is that maybe where they're tripping themselves up? I don't, you know. Possible. I mean, the, yeah. the, the reality is guys look at it and they go, well, I've got a three and a half thousandths run out on my neck. That's terrible. Yeah. I'll, I'll turn it down to make it, you know, I'll make it as even as I can. Yeah. Again, we got back in that situation with as the brass starts to flow in follow in following shots, we oil can that neck because now the thick is pushing on the thin ahead of it and it just wants to run that neck yeah. right off to the side. So yeah. we, we've created a throwaway, yeah. not even a fowler at that point anymore. So, so that, that's the one part of it. And it's something I noticed after talking to you last time I, I started doing it. The, the other question then is, have you seen any difference between using the expandable, which is pulling it back through, versus using a mandrel and pushing it in? Because I know I like, this is, you read the internet, there's a million different opinions on everything. So I like the expander because I do like the free flow carbide because of the, the results that we see from it. Okay. The yep. fact that we're free floating it, the fact that it's following uh, very much, if you take a look at it, it's very much like a ball. So it's yeah. really following that neck to simply reopen it that hopefully half thousands yep. or less. And really at that point in time, it's almost as if you've got a burnishing tool. It's not there to affect position, simply to affect um, diameter. Sure. <clears throat> My fear with mandrels always is driving something off center again. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. And I guess this is the the, the strength of having a comparator or measuring device there in your reloading, so you can go through stage by stage and figure out where it is that you're actually inducing or reducing this this um, issue or concentricity as well. So the the other question I've got then, which ties into that, and it's really just starting to talk about the the different reading um, sizing dies. Okay, so there's the I I when I went out, I went straight out uh, initially and went and got the competition um, uh, sizing dies and the seating dies with the micrometers and everything and the, the sliding sleeves. Now last time I uh, I've grabbed those with the separate body die and the neck sizing die. Mm -hmm. Now, what I, I just wonder as well is, do you find for, again, for guys like myself who is using um, Lepour brass at best and potentially Reading brass um, and using what is generally a factory, it's like a, a, a you term it a no-turn no uh, chamber, right, is no right? So, we're, so yeah, it's not, no custom, not necessarily custom, right. again, not on that... Right that edge of bench rest. Um, is, is the competition with the separate body and, and neck sizing the way to go? Or I'd even read that some guys would suggest that the, um, the, the full length may be a better option because I haven't done all these other steps as well. <clears throat> I know it's a convoluted question all over the place. No, but no, yeah. no, I understand. Yeah. In either case, whether we have a body die 
yeah. or whether we have the, the Type S full length, which is going to be a bushing style die with the full length below it. Yeah. In either case, I think what we do is we save ourselves using uh, the competition shell holders. Gotcha. Because yep. whichever we are doing, we're we're by using bushings, we're looking to as minimally affect as possible the neck itself, so it has the greatest life. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> but remember, be it a be it a bushing full type S bushing full, or be it a body die, both of them have to be designed so that they can produce a case at full cam over the standard shell holder that will fit a minimum chamber. Reality is most of us don't get minimum chambers. Yeah. So we go back to the now let's take the competition shell holders and minimally affect the rest of the case. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, it's it's maybe it's an overstatement, but but truly with the competition shell holder, you are custom head spacing that case to your rifle. Yeah. With a full cam over. And remember, that's critical because we know that even the best presses they still have axles that have to rotate on shafts. So there's mm. tolerance in there that, and we get, that's where we get back to a tough piece of brass versus a soft piece of brass. Yeah. You know, you can have two pieces of brass go through the same die with the exact same setting and wind up with a very dramatically different sh shoulder position if you don't cam over. Yeah. So you're, you're talking about, yeah, by cam over is, is running that press all the way up and that extra little bit of flex at the end, because then you know the press and everything is at a very certain point and using the competition shell holders from that point to actually manage the the essentially the brass into the die by That's comparison correct. is uh, some of the setups where you're moving the actual die itself up or down and and changing the whole the way the whole press itself could potentially work and now we're dependent upon the resistive force of that particular piece of brass as it affects the tolerance that's required for axles to turn, yeah. the tolerance that is inherently built into a class 2A and B thread, which is what we use on dies. You know, yeah. dies are done to a very loose thread intentionally, so they're easy to screw in and out. Yeah. Well, they, under the force load that a good press creates, they move. Mm. Mm. That slack gets taken up. So again, it's a side thing, but I, I, do you, and I know we're talking about uh, competitors' products, so I, I tread carefully for obvious reasons, but then, then things like the Dillons where the guys are using, say, a 550 to do a lot of their brass uh, prep in multiple stages for the long-range game, um, it's very hard to sort of get all those dies camming over, I suppose, or getting all, everything they, camming at the same point. Right. It's impossible. They, they physically can't because you're on a cantilever. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, there's some guys over here called Unique Tech. Yes. And they have they have created a tool head and an adapter to turn a Dillon 550 into a single stage press. Yeah. To work on big case, to actually, <laughs> pardon me, <clears throat> to actually be able to work on a cam over type situation for yeah. pushing shoulders back on things. And yeah. I have no, I have great respect for Dillon. They're a very good customer in their game. They do a tremendous job. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah. We live in kind of a different world mm. at Reddick. We, you know, we, we live in that long range game. Yeah. And, um, you know, we actually produce, a, you know, with the T7, we've actually got a, 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 a turret press that is of a quality that can produce bench rest quality brass. I mean, we've had, yeah. we've had a number of IBS world's records set by guys using a T7. Mm. A lot of guys in IBS won't even think about anything with a turret on it because that's got too much variability. Yeah, yeah. But it's a different game. And no, the difficulty is whenever we're dealing with a central ram and then a shell plate that holds those cases out on a cantilever, yep. it flexes. It, yep. just, it just can't do it. Well, that's the thing with the unique tech products that I've got here. You've got the, the it, it, you end up clamping the tool head down, but then right. the wooden floating um, parts on top. So you're kind of clamping parts, floating parts, clamping, you're kind of layering this float and clamp, um, which you can and do get some very good results out. But it also sometimes seems very complex because then a guy turns around and goes, well, nice, simple, single stage, cam over, good set of dies. It's just, it can be easy you do tend to fiddle a little bit more, I find, with some of the, the more complex, um, the progressives. 
Not to say you can't uh, do it. I'm not. This is the thing. There's what is it? Well, actually, I'm. I'm gonna. I'll go out on a limb and say that honestly, the best progressives that are out there will are designed to produce ammunition that is as good as you can buy from a factory. Hmm. And the Reading, the Reading buyer buys factory ammunition because he can't find the brass somewhere. That's the yeah. only reason. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the yeah. world that we live in. Yeah. And for the long range competitive shooter, the serious long range competitive shooter, that's the world that they live in too. Mm-hmm. So you see very little um, in terms of uh, in terms of PRS or now the EPR, the, the new extended PRS stuff that's out there. Yeah. Those guys aren't they're not loading on. They're not loading on progressive machines. Well, they just are. My understanding was and the way I was looking at it was the balance again between wanting 100 rounds to shoot on a weekend of this, the the rifle, which gets me into the, it's the volume, you know, what I'm yep. trying to trade off is, is basically speed uh, while maintaining that acceptable level of accuracy with it. If, if I had all the time in the world, then I think everybody would agree that, that a simple single stage setup correctly is going to be your best bet. But after doing that a hundred times in one evening, even sometimes some of us just get a little bit, you know, tired of it. <laughs> well, see, that's kind of, but see, that's kind of the fun of the fun of the the T seven because yes. you have that yeah. without the the tedious part of taking dies in and out all yeah. the time. Yeah. The other part that I can't emphasize enough is that when we are running a powder measure that's mounted on top of the press, you know, the enemy, you know, we we have a volumetric device from which we attempt to derive a weight. Yeah. That given weight is subject to settling yeah. because the volume will never change. I mean, it, it amazes me that we have customers will call and they go, you know, your powder measure is terrible. I can't get it. To, you know, I can't get to throw the same charge three times. I said, well, that'd be like saying you're pouring you're pouring different amounts of whiskey out of a shot glass. Mm. It's yeah. it's and it's always the variabilities of density. Yes. And when we look at what happens on a progressive press and then we look at the idea that that powder measure is mounted up higher. So the ripples in a pond, the further we get away from the source of the vibration, the larger the wave becomes Yeah. in terms. So the problem that comes into play there is, you know, that case was a little bit harder to size than the last one. And I bumped the press a little bit harder. Mm. So I changed the vibration which means the settling for the next round that the next charge is going to throw is going to be greater. And you can just about guarantee that you're going to throw more charge weight out of the, out of the next one. Yep. Yep. Well, it's again, it's the same thing. It's like for my setup here with the 550, that the first thing I was basically knew had to come off was the, the powder thrower and replace it with the funnel and the, the big body, uh, the big body. Uh, so basically I'm still hand Throw a measuring right. each charge going into there. So again, you're losing some of the speed compared to say lo- loading nine mil pistol for for a right. uh, day out at the at the range where not plinking, sure. but it's it's less yeah. critical. So yep. you've already slowed back down. For my fur fifty, you're now looking at dual heads. So it, it, again, it's that complexity and balancing it versus speed. And I especially when, as most of us are prone to do, you want to tweak something in a load or change something or play around mm-hmm. with something. You spend more time setting stuff up and less time actually reloading and then potentially shooting. So. And oddly enough, I'm not a bench rester by any means, but I do I shoot long range. Hmm. My powder measures have their own bench. They're not even yep. on the same bench with the presses. Yeah. And there's that's again back to that idea: how do we minimize any possible vibration that gets to them? Yeah. Um, funny little thing: you, you if you've looked at a Reading bench stand for the for the powder measure, mm-hmm. it's curved. It's not square. It doesn't have any angles in it. Okay. Yep. Vibrations don't travel through a curve as well. It's gotcha. aluminum where everything else that we make is steel or cast iron. Yes. Aluminum also debt. Aluminum transits vibration less than originally. They there were these beautiful. I have one old Reading cast iron bench stands. Yeah. Well, they transmitted vibration better, and they don't throw as good a charge as the one that, <laughs> off, off the aluminum one. You know, we've I've actually been looking at the idea and and. Uh, right now, again, it's it's an economic one of looking at the idea of building a carbon graphite fiber um, okay. bench stand that stand, would even yep. deaden any deaden any vibration more. Um, uh, you know, there's there's classic stories of bench rest guys that if if they're loading ammunition and a large truck drives by out front, they have to reset everything mm. because the vibration came through the ground into the basement, and now they're gonna they want to throw ten charges out of the powder measure to get into the yeah. get out of anything that may have settled. Yep. Yep. 
Which so, is an, that that side of it's an inner. I've read a few bits, books and bits on it as well, and that's that that goes into the realm of measuring volumetric rather than by weight. I think a lot of the the field guys, myself included, we're all going by weight. But it, it's interesting to know that a lot of the bench rest guys are actually using volumetric and and are less concerned. They're not necessarily using a scale the same way that we do. Well, and they do that because powder is um, smokeless powders are mild, mildly hygroscopic so sure. they abs- they absorb moisture so if you're loading on a high humidity day that powder the same amount of physical powder is going to weigh more and that's why the bench rest guys uh-huh. will lock their powder measure down at the beginning of the season they'll yeah. be very judicious about how to use that powder measure yes you yeah. know they'll use it very much optimally they'll they'll fill the measure they'll throw 10 or 20 charges out of it to make sure they've got any density out if there's a bump or a jolt or a, a noise or a loud bang they'll throw five or six charges out to anything to get that away but that's their what they're doing their mitigation strategy is how do i control the humidity and what humidity yeah. may do to the powder that i'm loading right now uh, okay gotcha gotcha that makes sense that makes sense so um getting back to the uh concentricity side of things as well and it's a case of you know i suppose what we quantify and where you find the bigger differences and uh, again what may seem like a simple question but should i be more concerned equally concerned about the concentricity i measure on a neck once i've i've resized or is it all about the concentricity on that projectile once it's seated projectile once it's seated okay now, is that enough that I, I don't necessarily worry as, as much about the neck concentricity? We, worry about the, we really want to worry about the neck before we ever size it. Okay. Because if we've, got a, if we've got a lack of concentricity in the neck based upon a wall thickness variation, as we talked about, the, cases, the, cases, the case becomes unusable for any okay. kind of serious accuracy work. Okay. If we so, get into that three and a half thousandths neck wall thickness variation – it's it's of no value. So if I'm I'm noticing big concentricity <clears throat> issues on my neck before I've maybe I've resized or I've I've done minimal before I seed it, that's where I really need to start going back and going, right, actually I need to go back a step, measure the thickness on this brass and see if it should be something I'm chasing or whether it's gonna be just a, right. a lost cause. Remember, if we if we remove the size if we move the expander from a good full end sizing die and we yeah. size the worst piece of brass in the world, yeah, it's gonna come out concentric. If we look at that neck it could be egg shaped. Yeah. Yeah. But it's going okay. to be concentric on the outside because we're, again, we have to work from that outside diameter to initially create the ID. Yes. And then either the, either pressing the bullet into it, which is round and con, which is round and concentric yep. or pulling a size button, expander button back through, which is round and concentric is going to push those anomalies back outside. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Cool. Uh, yeah. So I, I guess that's the thing. And, and <laughs> This is what I was saying. I originally was looking at this concentricity and I stopped, reframed, looked at what the actual gauge was measuring and realized I was getting two, three thou um, anyway. So I was kind of like, oh, well, actually, it's, it's probably not as bad as me panicking considering I'm just using the Hornaday brass. I haven't gone through in size and everything right. like that. So that was a good example of going, oh, okay. I mean, I have seen brass and loads where guys have got nothing. You know, it's right. negligible. You can't really see anything. But... I also know they're they're doing all these extra steps as well. Sure. So, um, I mean, are there any other sort of sitters for guys who are looking at uh, chasing these low SDES numbers and and loading ammo that's going to be better for their long-range shooting? Um, Also, functionality when we're considering we're we're slamming, you know, we're not gentle on a gear. We're we're slamming bolts closed. We're banging them against barricades, you know. We're going to be out in the rain, I think, all weekend. We've got a thunderstorm potentially for a competition this weekend, which is going to be pleasant. So we'll be. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. So we'll be out on a a hillside with it raining down and water getting everywhere, and you know, fumbling and dropping rounds probably in the grass. Um, It's it's a little bit different than than a nice clean pristine well not pristine but a clean bench rest environment. You know what what are the other things that we should be kind of thinking about or, or considering? I mean, one of the things that we can always look at, and that is, and this goes back to the T7, the Reading Competition Seating Die, and the Instant Indicator, <clears throat> and is that is that ability to very quickly, using those three tools, make sure we have a uniform set of bullet jumps, okay. even, within, yep. even within the bounds of what's going to fit the magazine. 
Maybe yes. our optimal jump is six, but we can't get that every time. So we go to eight. But if yep. they're all at eight, we've created uniformity again. Sure. <clears throat> and let's do that. You know, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, you go ahead. You're going to explain it. In, uh, that's a bit. And we, we do that through a process of making a dummy round into the lands that we use as our setup gauge on the instant indicator when it has the when it has the land bearing point contactor in it. And we intentionally will screw our, our uh, micrometer head back a little bit. We'll intentionally long seat um, and then we'll simply do the math because remember the land bearing point and the point from which the the cedar pushes mm -hmm. on each bullet are in different locations on those bullets yeah but the gap between them on one bullet stays the same yeah. so if we push from point a being the the point we push off of and we want the in the land bearing point goes to um minus six because we've set our gauge up on the lands yeah and we want to be at minus eight we know that if we click that micrometer down to um, two thousandths, we're going to move the land bearing point two thousandths. And we yep. may wind up, it's hard for some guys to, to, to deal with, but they may wind up with ammunition that has a, a, a six or eight thousandths variability in cartridge overall length. Yes. Yeah. But as long as that, is that cartridge case head, the land bearing point is identical. Yeah. Jump into the lands is going to be identical. Yeah. And what you're saying is that jump into the lands is ultimately more important than your overall length. Provide in our case, provided we can still get it into a magazine, obviously. Right. I, I make the comment over here so many times to say the only reason we have cartridge overall length is to fit the magazine. Yes. Because yeah. it's really it's really an enemy to good accuracy. Yeah, okay. Well, it's, it's yeah. sort of probably the first thing guys, myself included, I, I measure them to make sure they're all going to fit into the, the actual yep. case, That's what I, uh, into the mag, that's what I need to do. But I guess it's the, the raw or the rough measurement, whereas, yeah, the right equipment lets, it's another thing we can quantify and then and get that one out as there. Exactly. And I did a situation with a, uh, I, I may have told you the story, but the first time I wrote a white paper years ago that was on the writing website called Point of Engagement. <laughs> and we were talking about that. And I had a a, a, a friend, uh, more than acquaintance, but a friend who actually shoots bench rest for burger and was getting hand selected burger bullets, not just not burger bullets off the shelf, but literally hand select because he's a guy with IBS world records. And he, you know, he <clears throat> waved the, the, the BS flag on me. <laughs> then he went out and tried it and he came back kind of sheepish a few days later and admitted that with even with hand selected and the more of a VLD style bullet we're dealing with, the more that variation exists simply because we have such long slender. Uh, yeah. The ogive is so much less of a curve and starts to become almost parallel, you know? And so, <clears throat> but this in 20 cases, um, he used my process and realized, yep, his groups did shrink. Hmm. And he had a cartridge overall length variation of eight thousandths in those twenty cases. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the more of a VLD bullet we're dealing with, the bigger an issue it becomes, because the less diameter change, the slighter diameter change moves you farther or moves you a, a greater distance on a bullet that's that that has that shape. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I've got a, I've got one of the turret, your turret presses, the T7, um, coming up at some point to have a play with because I was, I've always been interested in it. It's a, it's a, you know, I've used progressives, I've never used a turret, so I'm just interested to see. Big thing for me is always going to be workflow, but I do find even now with the progressives. Yes, it's faster than using a single stage, but it's nowhere near as fast as I was using a progressive because I need, I've got these extra steps in it anyway. So I'm interested to see going to a turret with a, uh, theoretically, I know we're going to have everything a bit more straighter concentric, but speed wise, how it just compares to using the, the 550 with the multiple heads and everything like that. So that's my little intermediate experiment. So hmm. it'll be fun. Um, yes. it, and, you know, I use a, I use a loading block um, and for all my powder charging. Yep. So I'll go over to my powder bench with my bench stand and I'll work my loading block and I'll throw all my charges. Okay. And yep. then I'll come back over and it really comes down into the hand the when we eliminate the handling on and off the press multiple times. Yes. And then when we eliminate um uh, when we eliminate uh, as you said then and, and handling happens with what you're doing in terms of having to use the funnel and pour powder and all that. Believe yeah. me, it gets pretty quick even on 50. 
yep. to charge 50 in, a, in an MTM kit, you know, because we can the, the running bench stands nice because I can do three rows, turn the turn the um, block around and then do the other two. So I don't have to take the cases out. And gotcha. Yep. Um, yep. And um, so those are things that come to play. I'm going to throw one last thing in and it's a it's by way of a guy that I have some faith in because he's one of the heads of uh, the the. He's a big wig in the 303 um, shoots over in Britain, the military matches that are shot with 303s. And he has come to us with he's working on getting 25 fellows together because he is so sold on taper crimping. Okay. Um, He's seen uh, he's seen improvements to his standard deviation and his um, um, extreme spread. Because he also happens to shoot a P-17 Enfield in 3006, and he's got a taper crimp die for that. Right. And they would like the, he he would like us to build a taper crimp die for the 303. <clears throat> Be, again for match shooting because he sees it because of this difference that he's witnessed in the P-17. Okay. So um, it is interesting. That gets back to what we we're talking about on the idea that we're quantifying. We 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 have no real way to quantify. Um, true neck tension because we only look at it at this point as a diameter. Yes, and so yep. his idea that a mild taper crimp, he believes is giving him greater consistency on his start pressures and hence a reduced variability in vertical string. Yeah, because again, I suppose there was, it's the idea of uh, introducing a, a controlled crimp or a controlled taper crimp. So yeah, you know what it is. You know what you're actually doing to that right. load. So therefore, it's another right. variable you've removed. Yep. Hmm. Yep. So I'll leave on that note because that's one yep. we haven't documented or proved, but it's <laughs> coming from a fairly reliable source. And it's interesting that he's, you know, shooting both these rifles in the same styles of matches. Yes. And he's literally, it's there's an association of 303 military match shooters in Britain right now, and they would like us to build 303 Taper crimp dies. Taper crimp dies. Nice. There's always there's always something else we can do, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, and then, like I said, I'll um uh, put it out to the guys listening that if they've got specific questions, or we can maybe narrow it down to a question or two, and um we'll we'll get in touch again and have another session uh, sooner rather than later, and um yeah, keep them short and sweet if we can. So thank you very much again for your time, Robin. I appreciate your holiday at the moment. Thank you. Thank you for having me always. Cheers. Take care.